are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. Very glad you could join me a Thursday afternoon. And of all things, I'm right here back in Santa Barbara, able to do our live question and answer on a Thursday afternoon or nighttime or morning or whatever it is in your time zone around the world. I am so happy to be back. Although the last two Thursdays, uh, one of them, I was very busy with a conference and I wasn't able to do the normal question and answering. And the other one, I actually recorded a question and answer session, but was not able to uh, get the technical details right. The audio quality on it was terrible, so I never posted it. Uh, But here I am again on a Thursday afternoon live. And let me just say, I am so happy to be here live. Thanks to those of you who are joining us now. If you got a question, type it in the chat window. I hope to get to it. If I don't get to it, this particular question and answer session, I hope to get to it in a later one. And I'm glad you could join us. I wanna lead off with a question that came in from somebody named Julius. And Julius asked this question, ready? He says, I got a question and I think you are the right person to ask my question too. I, I don't know Julius if I'm the right person or not, but here's his question. He says, is tithing a law to Christians? Julius, first and foremost, let me say, I think that is a great question, and it's a common question that a lot of believers have. They want to know if tithing is a law for Christians today. Well, let me give you my best understanding. And again, we just have to realize this is one of those areas where there is some legitimate disagreement in the Christian world. Some people take one stance and other people take another, but I'll give you my best understanding. Okay, ready for this? First of all. In the New Testament, the tithe is mentioned in passages like Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, and Luke chapter 11, verse 42, where Jesus spoke about the tithe. It's very interesting, criticizing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day, while at the same time supporting the principle of the tithe. Because even though Jesus criticize the hypocrisy of the religious leaders in their practice of tithing. This is what Jesus said in those passages about tithing. He said, these you ought to have done. So Jesus, at least in principle, spoke with approval about the principle of tithing. He disagreed with how they were carrying it out, but the principle he agreed with. Then again, also in Hebrews chapter seven, verse six specifically, it speaks with approval regarding Abraham's practice of tithing. So the New Testament doesn't mention tithing very much. When it does mention it, it speaks with it in general terms of approval. Though again, I wanted to make note of that passage regarding the uh, religious leaders of Jesus' day, how Jesus criticized how they were practicing tithing. Now, I find this to be an interesting thing though. Though the New Testament doesn't speak about tithing very much, it does speak much more about the idea of giving. So this is how I would state it. Tithing is not emphasized in the New Testament. It's not ignored. The the New Testament speaks about tithing, and when it does, it's in terms of general approval. But tithing is not emphasized in the New Testament, but giving 
is. Do you see the difference there? Tithing not emphasized, giving is. And there's at least two principles, I think, about the New Testament understanding of giving that go back to the principle of tithing. Let me say what those two principles are. First of all, the principle is that giving should be regular. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, he said regarding the collection that they were going to receive in the, among the Christians in the city of Corinth, he said that it should be done every week. The line in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 is on the first day of the week. In other words, Paul wanted their giving in Corinth to be systematic and not haphazard. When they came together for worship in the word, they were commanded to receive an offering and Christians were expected to give. So giving is supposed to be regular. That's the New Testament idea. And then here's a second one. Again, we get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, that giving is supposed to be proportional, you know, proportion as in a percentage. Paul wrote that, and here again, I'm quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, that each one should give, here's the line, as he may prosper. In other words, the idea there is in proportion to how he has prospered. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. This means that, I'll just say it plainly, believers who have more should give more. We should give proportionately. In other words, if you make, and again, I'm just throwing out numbers here. If you make $100 a week and you give $10 a week, that would be a 10% proportion, a tithe, then you should give more when you make $200 a week. Your giving should be proportional. Now, what does that have to do with tithing? Well, tithing is proportional giving. And, and, and a strict tithe is a 10% proportion. Now, look, there's a lot more I could say, and probably I will say in a later broadcast about these ideas, these principles of giving, because the New Testament actually tells us a lot about the principle of giving. Uh, those are just two ideas that giving should be regular and giving should be proportional. I think I made a list sometime of 12 or 15 different things that the New Testament tells us about giving. And I think it's a pretty good list and we can go over it some other time. But the New Testament does not emphasize tithing. It doesn't ignore it. It emphasizes giving, but giving that is regular and giving that is proportional. Then you just get into the idea of what should the proportion be? The Old Testament standard was a 10% proportion. What should it mean to us in the New Testament? Well, that's for each individual believer to figure out, but giving should be regular and giving should be proportional. And if I could add, the Bible also says that we should give to those ministries, to those works that support us, that feed us spiritually. Now, fundamentally, this should have in view the work of the local church. Uh, but if there are other ministries that feed you, that bless you, that sustain you spiritually, then it is appropriate for you also to make some kind of gift unto them. All right. So, Julius, I hope that answers your question. I think it's a good question. I like it when Christians say, are we under the tithe? Do we have freedom today? I will tell you this, and I'll kind of close with this on this subject and then get to the uh, chat window. I I've read that among early Christians, they said something like this. We're not under the tithe. They're speaking of new covenant believers. 
we're not under the tithe. We can give more. And you gotta say, I kind of like that thinking, isn't it, Jew? I mean, for, for some Christians to limit their giving to 10% would be dishonoring to God because they have the capability to give much more. So I like what the early Christians said, we're not under the tithe, we can give more. But again, remember those two principles, our giving, because that's what the New Testament emphasizes, not tithing, but giving, our giving should be regular and it should be proportional. And maybe some other time we'll get into more of these principles of giving. All right, good. Let's go now to the questions that have come in during our live time here. Uh, very grateful for those of you who've turned in. First of all, um, Sean asked this question. Hi, Sean. It's nice to see you again. Uh, hi, Pastor. How can we pray for the church in Germany? That's a great question. Now, my work in Germany is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily among Calvary Chapel congregations in Germany, in Western Europe. And let me tell you, it's been one of the bigger blessings of my life to get to know these pastors, these Christian workers, these leaders, these saints of these churches, uh, of sort of the Calvary Chapel community of churches there in Germany and Western Europe in general. What a blessing it has been for my life to know these people, to work with them, to bless them, to strengthen them as much as God gives me the ability to. And I'll tell you, pray for the pastors and the leaders, the Christian workers there in Europe, generally, in Germany specifically. They face an extremely secular society, a society that in many ways feels they have no need for God a society that is facing a lot of pressures right now because of immigrants coming in. And uh, they need to be strengthened. They need to be encouraged. They need to be blessed in the work that God gives to them. I pray, pray for evangelistic effort and evangelistic success because the believers I run around with and meet with there in Germany and Western Europe in general, they have such a great sense of the need and they want to meet the need. And they're just like, Lord, give us the ability to do that. That's a great prayer to pray for them. Thank you for asking that, Sean. Next question comes up. Redemption in Christ asks, in Acts 21, verse 9, Philip's daughters are called prophetesses. What role do you believe they had in the early church? And is there still that role today in the church Thank you for your work for the kingdom. Well, you're very welcome, Redemption Christ. I'm glad you asked that question. Again, Acts chapter 21, verse 9, it speaks of the daughters of Philip. Philip, that great deacon of the church, though he's not given specifically that title that seems to be the role that he functioned in, in the book of Acts, when they chose servants to minister unto the practical needs of believers among the early Christians in Jerusalem. Philip, who preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, he wasn't just a practical servant. He was also a great evangelist. Uh, this man, Philip, who did this great work, he later was one of these who had daughters. And as Redemption Christ mentioned, Acts chapter 21, verse 9 mentions these daughters as being prophetesses. Now, your question, what role did they have in the early church? Redemption Christ, that's simply a question we don't have the answer to. We don't know what specific role prophets played. I, I see 
that after the foundational work of the apostles and prophets, and by the way, I think this is a very important point to us to come back to again and again. I'm kind of turning over to my Bible now, but uh, I have the passage pretty much memorized. Ephesians chapter two, verse 20 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. There were foundational apostles and prophets given to the early church. Those foundational apostles and prophets were ones that gave us the New Testament. The New Testament is the ongoing work of those foundational apostles and prophets as described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Those apostles and prophets, those ones who had the authority to speak to the entire church in an authoritative way, that, if you want to say that office, that gifting, that calling, I believe that passed with the publication of the New Testament. I believe that the gifts themselves continue on to the present day, but the office does not continue to the same day. There are not Ephesians 2.20 apostles and prophets in the church today, those who have authority from God to speak with the inspiration of God to the entire church of God. Now, I do believe that God in the present day still serves his church and ministers to his church through the gift of prophecy. And that's how I see these prophetesses who were the daughters of Philip in Acts chapter 21, verse 9. They were people through whom God may on occasion speak through them to give blessing and guidance and edification and comfort and encouragement to his people. And so I don't see it being a fixed office in the church, but something that God would use spontaneous through those people to speak. As 1 Corinthians says, he who speaks prophecy speaks encouragement, edification, blessing to God's people. I think that's what those prophetesses were. We need to make a distinction between a gift in its exercise and the office. I'm not much into the office of apostle or prophet today, but as the gift of prophecy may be exercised within the church, I do see a place for it and I do see it being exercised. And that's the idea that I see there with the prophetesses of Acts chapter 21, verse 9. You know, I, I remember a writing from an early church writer named Tertullian. And we could talk a lot about Tertullian and uh, who he was and what he did and the good and the bad. But Tertullian gives an amazing description of an early church service where the gift of prophecy was in function. And I'll just kind of summarize it. Uh, he, he says something like this. He says, we have in our midst a sister who gets prophetic utterances. And this is what he says. He says, when God gives this sister prophetic utterances, I don't know if it's angels speaking to her. I don't know if it's God or whatever, but God speaks to her. Now, you, you would imagine, well, what happens with this sister when God speaks to her in the midst of the services? Does she stand up and shout out, thus saith the Lord, and get everybody's attention? Does she take over the church service? Does she go up and push the pastor out of the pulpit and start preaching her own message? No. This is what Tutorian said she did. She said, after the service, she speaks to the elders of the church and shares with them what she believed God had spoken to her. To me, I think that's a beautiful exercise of the gift of prophecy. 
not to take over a church service, not to draw attention to oneself, but if someone has been recognized as someone that God may use with the gift of prophecy and they believe that God has spoken to them, well, why not speak to the elders of the church? And then they can do what the Bible says should be done. They can apply judgment and discernment to such a word and, and really say what would be from the Lord, what would not be, what the wheat is from the chaff, what would be for right now, what might be for later. But again, not to regard it as a word in any measure on par with what we receive from those foundational apostles and prophets as described in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So again, a great question there, redemption in Christ. Let me get to the next one. Zach says, hello, Pastor David. I wanted to know your opinion about it being possible that the Apostle Paul, not intending to write all that he did in Romans, but the Holy Spirit led him to write more than just the personal aspects. Well, Zach, I'm having a little bit of difficulty understanding your question. Let me read it again. It being possible that the Apostle Paul did not intend to write all that he did in Romans, but that the Holy Spirit led him to write more than just the personal aspects. Well, what, what's interesting about that, Zach, is that Romans seems to be one of those letters that was written for a general purpose. And what do I mean by general purpose? I mean this, that several letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, to the Colossians, to the Galatians, uh, those letters and more to the Philippians, those letters were written to a very specific church to address situations in that specific church. Now, it doesn't mean that those letters don't speak to us today. They definitely do. But we just kind of have to figure out how Paul was addressing those situations and draw from them the principles that exist to us today in the modern church. Now, there were other letters, and I'm thinking specifically Ephesians and Romans, that even though they were written to congregations, it seems Paul deliberately wrote them not to address problems in a specific church, but to sort of describe in big terms God's redemptive work. You'll notice that that's different about Romans and about Ephesians. So I believe that very much Paul had an understanding that he was explaining not just things for a particular congregation in Romans and in Ephesians, but things that were principles for the body of Christ at large throughout all generations. Now, there is some at the end of the book of Romans where Paul does speak to individual believers, giving them greeting, giving them a few particular messages, but the tone of Romans chapters 1 through 15, again, I'm leaving out the last chapter where there is more personal uh, conversation going on. It really is something that is universal for God's people throughout all ages. Th th this speaks to some of just sort of the greatness and the majesty behind Romans and behind Ephesians that are so apparent when you get in there and study those books. So I hope that's kind of helpful for you there, uh, Zach. Um, Anthony, hey, Anthony, great to see you again. I liked what you post on Facebook in the last couple of weeks. I liked that picture. It was a pleasure to meet you within the last few years. Anthony says this, Anthony, is there any relationship between the Temple Mount and Mount Moriah? Okay, Anthony, the question that is, yes, we believe so. Mount Moriah was the place that God led Abraham to, to sacrifice Isaac. 
And so he led them to Mount Moriah on the Mount of the Lord. It should be provided. We believe that it's part of this same set of hills and a continuation of it to where the temple later stood. And we could say part of that same complex of hills where Jesus himself was crucified. And so there seems to be this continuity on the Mount, excuse me, my microphone fell down. On the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. There seems to be this continuity between uh, the place where Isaac was sacrificed, the temple being built, and in general location, not specific spot, but in general location where Jesus was crucified. Uh, it's all in the same place in the Jerusalem region in these series of hills where um, Abraham went to offer Isaac and later where the temple was built. So yes, Anthony, there is a connection between those things. Not like in a specific location, you know, X marks the spot. It's not so much that, but in general geography. And when I say general geography, I mean in the same immediate region, not even talking about a few miles. We're talking about, uh, you know, matters of meters or yards apart. Uh, you know, 100 meters, 200 meters, uh, a kilometer, not not more than that. Okay, next, Denise asks, hi, Denise. Hi, David. How would you suggest making provision for the operation of the gifts of prophecy, tongues, etc., in a church setting? Thank you, and God bless you. Well, Denise, that's a great question. And let me tell you again, I, I always like to stress when I talk about this, this is a matter where good and godly believers have some measure of disagreement. Christians aren't all agreed on this idea of how the gifts of the Spirit should function in a church service. I'll give you my take on this uh, again, and I think this is very present in our Calvary Chapel kind of uh, church family tradition, if we want to use that phrase. In the Calvary Chapel world, we kind of consider it like this that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, but the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit should not be made the center of congregational meetings. So when we get together for a Sunday, our focus is not to center on the public display of the gift of prophecy or tongues or what have you, but on the worship of God, the edification, the building up of God's people through the preaching of the word and the uh, bringing to maturity of the people of God. And in addition to that, as Paul wrote to Timothy, doing the work of an evangelist, all of those things together. Now, what place does perhaps the gift of tongues or uh, the gift of prophecy have uh, on a regular congregational meeting, especially a congregational meeting where unbelievers and outsiders are invited to come and hear the word and be a part of worship and be a part of the experience, what place do those gifts of the spirit, such as tongues or prophecy, have in that context? I would say this. First of all, there is always the personal exercise of those gifts. Um, I don't mean to be controversial here. I don't mean to, you know, stir up a whole can of worms, but I, I, I believe that God has given me the gift of tongues and I pray in the gift of tongues. And oftentimes I pray for others with a gift of tongues when I have no idea what to pray for them. I believe that there's an aspect of intercession that happens where, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, 
when I pray in the gift of tongues, my understanding is unfruitful, yet God knows what I pray. So when I don't know what to pray for a person, I may pray for them with the gift of tongues. I don't do it loud. Most of the time when I do it, that person doesn't even know that I'm praying in the gift of tongues for them. I'm doing it quietly, softly, but because I'm not praying unto them, I'm praying unto God. So there's the personal exercise of prophecy. We, we have at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, a prayer team. And uh, towards the end of service, it's very common for us to invite people to come forward for prayer. And in the exercise of that, we encourage people May God give you a prophetic word for the person that you pray for. Uh, then if God would, then share it with them. W would God lead you to, because you don't know what else to pray, pray for that person with the gift of tongues, then pray for them with the gift of tongues. Uh, and so these are places where the prophetic gift may be exercised or the gift of tongues. Now, in a meeting that is more structured for believers, what may be classically termed to be a believer's meeting, then there can be more liberty given to the public exercise of gifts because you are, as Paul spoke about it in 1 Corinthians, you're not going to have believers present there who would be mystified and puzzled and even, to some measure, to use a phrase, freaked out by what they see in front of them. Uh, and so in a believer's meeting, there can be more public exercise of the gifts because you are in addition where those things can be addressed simply among believers. But Paul seems to indicate that when a meeting is open to the public, there should be more supervision, more restriction accepted to the public exercise of these gifts. Now, that being said, I always believe that if God should give what we would think to be a prophetic word to somebody, that what they need to do is they need to bring it before the leadership of the church, the pastors, the elders, however the leadership of that church is structured and simply say, "God's, I believe God gave me this word. By the way, I think we should always be humble about what we believe God is speaking to us. Frankly, Denise, it makes me nervous when uh, people say, God told me this, God told me that, God told me the other thing. I always like to see a good measure of humility about what we believe God is speaking to us because none of us hears the word of the Lord perfectly. None of us. And we need to be humble about our ability to hear the word of the Lord. But if somebody would say, hey, I think God is speaking this to me, bring it to the elders, bring it to the pastor, communicate to them and let them judge that word as the New Testament instructs. So again, Denise, um, that's my understanding of an effective way. These gifts can be exercised on a personal level, can and should be exercised on a personal level. And publicly, on a more public level, I think that should be reserved for what we'd consider believers meetings, meetings where there are fundamentally believers present. And even there, of course, such words should be judged in their exercising as the New Testament would instruct. All right, thank you for that question, Denise. Uh, Jared says, in light of what you shared earlier in the video from Ephesians 2, who are some prophetic voices today that you trust and are encouraged by? <laughs> well, Jared, that's an interesting question. And again, I'm just gonna speak to you personally about my own perspective, my own understanding. You can agree or disagree with this as you please. But first of all, 
I get nervous about anybody who calls themselves an apostle or a prophet today. Again, because I don't think that the office exists today as it did in the New Testament. I believe in the Ephesians 2.20 principle. Um, anybody who starts calling themselves an apostle or a prophet, my antenna go up. Because I think that it is difficult, if not impossible, to take or receive such titles without weirdness going on. The weirdness might come from the person who takes the title, apostle or prophet, or the weirdness might simply come from other people who uh, refer to that person with that uh, with that title, because it's just weird. When apostle so-and-so is in your midst, it, it lends to weirdness. When prophet so-and-so is in your midst, it lends to weirdness. It's like, woo, here's the apostle. Woo, here's the prophet. So I'm not into those titles. I'm not into those offices. But I do believe that there are men and perhaps women today as well to whom God has given a specific message to the church. Now, I believe this, that I trust the people who are wise enough to never take unto themselves that title. L let me give you an example. You asked uh, who are voices today that you trust and are encouraged by. I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm going to turn around and take a book off the bookshelf behind me. And I'm going to show you this. Um, there is a book behind me titled The Jesus Style. And this is written by a man I regard as a friend and as a great example to me and to many others uh, named Gail Irwin. God has given Gail a remarkable message. And that message is fundamentally about the nature of Jesus and specifically the servant nature of Jesus. Now, Gail is a godly and a wise man. So he is smart enough and godly enough to never take or receive that title uh, prophet. But I believe that God has given him a unique and a powerful message for the church. And that Gail has been very faithful in delivering that message over many decades. Guys like that, I regard in some regard to be prophets for the church, people that God has given a important and powerful message to the church. Uh, but again, wise enough to not take that title unto themselves. Uh, I believe that, that Pastor Chuck Smith was such a man that God raised up for unique leadership in the church. I would never call Pastor Chuck Smith an apostle, and he would have never called himself an apostle. But God raised him up to unique leadership in the church, a man raised up to lead not just a congregation, but a movement. It doesn't mean he was perfect. It doesn't mean he was infallible. It doesn't mean that, you know, he should be institutionalized as uh, the measure of all things. Not that at all. But I don't think it can be denied that God raised up a man like that to lead not only a congregation, but a movement. Uh, there are certain men that you look at and God is used in a unique way. Some of them are known. Some of them fly under the radar. 
We can't equivalent fame with effectiveness. Some of God's most effective servants are men and women that are very little known beyond the people they have directly impacted. And we need to rejoice in God for such servants. So there are a few. I'm grateful for them, Jared, and I pray that God will raise up many more. Well, again, uh, I'm going to sort of conclude that here for today. Uh, I can't wait to get to it. I believe I'm going to be with you. My plan, my calendar says I can join you next Thursday again for another live question and answer. I hope you can join us. I hope that you click the thumbs up like button. I hope that you subscribe and tell other people, pass it on to other people to subscribe. The more subscriptions, the more likes we have, the more visibility these question and answer times have. I, I do want to tell you this, though, give you some news from Enduring Word. We have recently made some wonderful updates to our Enduring Word app. It's working better than ever. And soon, you want a prayer request? Here's something you can pray for. Pray that we can break through the final few obstacles we have to getting the Android version out. Every few days, I get a question from somebody. Hey, when's the Android version of the Enduring Word app coming out? Look, we're working on it. There's a few technical problems that we're just trying to overcome. Hopefully, very soon, we'll have the Android version out. And uh, you can go right now to your app store for the iTunes uh, store, uh, for the iOS platform, iPhones, iPads, and such. And hopefully, very soon, your prayers will make a difference in this. We can get the Android version out. But I'm happy about the recent updates we've made to the Enduring Word app. It's looking good. It's functioning well. Get that. Pass it on to others. Thank you for your continued prayers for the ongoing work of Enduring Word. Again, it's an exciting season in our work. Just in the last few weeks, we put up the Chinese translation of my commentary on Ephesians. It's up there on EnduringWord.com right now. Isn't that fantastic? The commentary on Ephesians is up and running, translated into Chinese, and we're seeking to do that in our two targeted languages, Chinese and Arabic. Your ongoing prayers, your support, your interest in this, it makes a difference. So thank you for that. Blessings to you all, and I look forward to next week when we can get together and have another live question and answer time. God bless you and join you next week again. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.